0: This is Who She Knows, a podcast produced by She Knows Media. And this is your host, Elisa Camelhort-Page, Chief Community Officer for She Knows Media. Today we'll be talking about a topic that is close to my heart and stomach, veganism, and the different perspectives on that way of living and eating. First up, we have Tracy McCorder, a vegan trailblazer of 30 years, national bestselling author, Uh, author of the site, By Any Greens Necessary, public health nutritionist, and frequent speaker. Tracy, so glad to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. So we're talking today about veganism, and I'm a vegan. uh, Before that, I was a vegetarian. And my first question is always, what's your vegan origin story? When did you decide to go vegan? Why? And what was your method, whether cold turkey or cold tofurkey or phasing out things gradually? How did you get to the place where you are?
1: I was introduced to vegetarianism in the seventh grade. I went to Sidwell Friends School here in Washington, D.C. And my seventh grade teachers, two of them were vegetarian and they wanted our Camping trip to be all vegetarian, I thought this was a horrible idea, so I wrote a petition against it, got overruled, we had a horrible vegetarian camping trip. I thought they were crazy, never gave it a second thought. Then fast forward seven years and I am a sophomore at Amherst College and our Black Student Union brought Dick Gregory to campus to talk about the state of Black America. And instead, he decided to talk about the plate of Black America and how Mm. unhealthfully most folks eat. And he graphically traced the path of a hamburger from a cow on a factory farm through the slaughterhouse process to a fast food restaurant to a clogged artery to a heart attack. Wow. And. Yeah, wow, indeed. He spoke for about two hours on this topic, and I'd never heard anything like that before. And uh, I had gained 25 pounds my freshman year in college. Um, I hated vegetables. Uh, my mother was, a, was, a, was health conscious. You know, we mm-hmm. were omnivores. But she was pretty health conscious growing up, and I hated all of that health food, healthier food. So um, it was his lecture that actually created the spark. And I immediately gave up um, meat for about a week and thought he was crazy too, but I couldn't get what he said out of my mind. So I went home for the summer and read everything I could about vegetarianism. And this was 1986, you know, pre-internet. You had to actually go to the library. There weren't a lot of books, but I read what was there. And by the end of the summer, my mother and I and one of my sisters, Decided to become vegetarian. And then I went to Howard University back in my hometown of DC and I discovered that there was this large and thriving black vegan and vegetarian community in DC that I had known nothing about. And they started, they had started the very first 100% vegan cafes and restaurants and carryouts in the nation's capital beginning in 1982. Wow. So I. I immersed myself in this community and learned everything about how to become a vegetarian first. I I went vegan about a year later Um, how to make it delicious, how to shop, where to shop, how to um, do it on a budget and then my senior year I went back to Amherst and I was really the only vegetarian I knew on campus there were of course others, I just didn't know who they were, and there were no vegetarian meals on campus, wow. so I took myself off of the meal plan and made my own food, I caught the bus up to Bread and Circus, there was no Whole Foods on the East Coast at that time and made my made my meals and carried my plate of food across campus to the cafeteria every day. Hmm twice a day to eat with my friends and but but I was committed and I knew what I was doing at that time and then um, a little after I graduated in 88 um, I was able to finally let go of cheese and and became a vegan so that's my origin story
0: yeah so you know when I first went vegetarian and, and it took me by the way 17 years to go vegan. I was vegetarian for 17 years before I went vegan. Um, I read both the animal stuff, but I also read some politically oriented stuff, including um, meat. What was it? The Sexual Politics of Meat by Carol Adams, which is all about patriarchy and feminism and and, um, and the connection between feminism and animal rights. Um, when Dick Gregory spoke at your campus, did I, I know that you said he traced sort of the cow to the plate, to the clogged artery, to the heart attack. Did he um, also bring in any, um, the racial politics of meat and any historical context around the way folks eat uh, today? And, and did he bring in any of that aspect?
1: i'm sure he did um, that that particular you know tracing of the hamburger is the thing that really sticks out in my mind um, You now he became a vegetarian first because of his involvement in the civil rights movement and his practice of non-violence and that so that was the catalyst for him and then he met a woman named alvinia fulton who was a naturopathic doctor who opened the first Health food store on the south side of Chicago in the 1950s. She helped him go vegan. He was actually obese while he was vegetarian, and and he was still eating whatever yeah. because he wasn't focused. And I I amen what you're saying about Carol J. Adams. Um, that book was seminal. Yes. And uh, you know her work is is phenomenal. She's a pioneer in that area for sure. And and this is the work that I do just in terms of part of the work that I do talking about um, the history of, of Blacks and veganism mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, and race, racism and food justice mm-hmm. and uh, all of these things. So I'm I'm very much, you know, a part of that. I consider myself a part of that tradition.
0: I think it's so interesting that you very quickly were able to find a community of black vegans in your area, I feel like there's, um, there's not much visibility for that community. And in fact, there's a lot of anti-vegan rhetoric that's around saying that being vegan is privilege. And that therefore, you know, there's this kind of implication that most vegans are like elite white people who um, don't care about humans and only care about animals and have the privilege to do so. And I actually, um, there's a pretty strong tradition of there also being vegans from outside that uh, particular demographic. And um, I feel like they need a spotlight maybe to say that there's there's a it's a political it can be a political act and it can be the antithesis of an act of privilege to apply nonviolence even to your plate that's that's me getting you know, my political juju on around this this topic. I know that you focus on the needs of the African-American community. Do you see that, like you mentioned that your family ended up going vegetarian with you, which I think is amazing. Um, But I know many people whose family traditions and I would maybe even say love languages are rooted in in food, which can make that difficult. Do you encounter that a lot in the folks that you work
1: with? I do. I do. You know, that like one of the first things that I tell people is that we have a tradition of eating this way that dates back to West Africa. I mean, most traditional cultures are plant-based. And if they do eat meat and dairy, they're in portions that that are equivalent to condiments. You know, they're not the foundation of the plate. Um, and so I trace that all the way forward just to let people know there's always been this stream of folks who who have eaten healthy plant-based foods next to this river of us who are eating the standard American diet. Um, I you know at that point I'm able to just talk about different traditions or new traditions um, as opposed to suggesting that people reject the tradition that they grew up in you know I just suggest that they try a different one or how you know and suggest ways that they can actually be related you know and then talking about the political context the USDA the food industry and I just you know typically find that people are very receptive no one wants to be unhealthy no one wants their children to be unhealthy they just have different information and mis, and they've been a misinformed obviously um, by design by these industries. And so once I share that with folks, I find that they're pretty receptive. Really the biggest thing at these days, everyone knows someone who's vegetarian or vegan, they've heard of it, Yeah. you know, they don't even ask where do you get your protein as the first question anymore. Usually (laughs) they give you their food confession. Oh, well, I don't eat that much meat, right? So the the paradigm is shifting, um, which I think is a good thing. I think, you know, really folks are just thinking, oh, well, I would do it, but I don't know how to cook it. Or I don't know how to make it right. affordable. I don't I don't think it'll taste good. And I always tell people, if you can make a dead bird taste good, then you can make <laughs> healthy, wholesome, plant-based food taste delicious. Flour is vegan. Seasonings are vegan. Right. Herbs are vegan.
0: Well, that's why I always give a shout out to books like um, Bryant Terry's Afro Vegan, which takes all those more traditional recipes that folks may have from wherever their origins were and adjust them. And I think your point about how do cultures around the world eat before Westernized food gets to them? I mean, it's not just Africa. It's most like South America is the same. Asia is the same. Like the, the, the baseline diet is actually very plant-based with, as you say, meat as a condiment, if at all. And, and, you know, culture survived on this for millennia. So like, I feel like we've we've been a little bit, as you say, misinformed about what healthy eating has to be, which when it's really a pretty modern post-refrigeration, post-industrial industrialization invention to be so exactly. meat-centric. So tell me about how you work with people or how you um, help people who want to explore veganism um, what's your advice? How do you help get people started? And and are there different? Um, do people come from a, a few basic different places or motivations? And does that change the advice you give them?
1: You know, most folks come to me because I'm a public health nutritionist. Obviously, they're going to come to me um, because they want to improve their health in some way. And uh, but you know, I talk to a lot of folks who are interested in you know, coming to this because of because of their compassion for animals, for animal rights, animal liberation reasons, for the environment. Mm-hmm. Those are the, you know, those are the most common reasons. So I'm always trying to kind of meet people where they are. When I first started this, um, you know, 30 years ago, I was very self-righteous and, you know, <laughs> very evangelical about it. And I, And I still am evangelical about it. It's my profession. But my position now is that I, I'm able to share information. I'm able to share my experiences, and you know, I just want people to have information so that they can make healthy choices, um, or not. Most people are quick to say, "Oh, I don't want to become I don't want to become vegan." Right. And so um, I'm all about helping them add to their plate, and you know, knowing that if they are able to stick with it. Um, adding more and more healthier foods will crowd out the unhealthier foods. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just inevitable. Yeah. And um, and every little bit counts. Every little bit helps. The more plant-based foods you eat, the fewer meat and dairy-based foods you eat, the healthier you will be. I mean, it's these steps all make a difference to your health almost immediately.
0: You know, I it's when you said that, um, and you said that you're evangelical about, you know, that you believe this is the pathway to an inevitably more healthy lifestyle, um, I feel like um, we sometimes are caught between a rock and a hard place. Like, I really try hard not to be self-righteous or evangelical, but obviously when people say, well, you think you're better than me because you're vegan, and I'm like, well, I think my food choices are better better because obviously that's why I'm doing it. Like I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't believe it was the better way. But let me tell you about the five ways I'm most definitely not better than you. I'm super impatient. I can get really snarky. I mean, nobody's perfect, right? I have many flaws. I just have I do happen to believe that the way I eat is like the the best possible way I can eat. And um and I I feel like we get into so much um there's no gray area with folks and there's no like I don't know. I feel caught sometimes.
1: I guess it's choosing when I share it. Mm-hmm. That has changed. Oh, tell me about that. I used to share it at the dinner table, you know. Oh. And, uh, you know, I used to talk about feces on chicken and, you know, and just like <laughs> trying to gross people out and trying to get them to change right then. And, mm. you know, that's not appropriate for me um, to do. You know, I don't, yeah. I don't find that appropriate. I find that offensive. And my oldest sister and her family... Uh, they are not vegan and although that they're, uh, they're very supportive of me and, and the work that I do in in promoting veganism they are not and so the benefit of that for me has been that we all eat together we all go out to eat yeah we have family gatherings together and over you know over these last 30 years it's just become second nature and so I'm um, it's helped me to just stay open and stay loving um, with ev- with everybody.
0: Yeah. Although I, I find that, well, so no one in my life is vegan. Um, no one in my like day to day, my family, my significant other. Um, so you know, I'm I'm pretty much the only one usually. and people are generally very supportive. I find that people often ask me, During a meal, why I'm vegan? Because that's when it comes up that I am. Because I may have to ask the waiter a couple questions, or you know, I'm just trying to figure out what I can eat, and and they will ask me, and I I feel awkward then, like ah, can we talk? You know, I you really want to hear it now because it's not, you know, it's it came from an ethical basis, so that's going to make everybody uncomfortable while we're at a meal together. But um, you know, I was going to say that having a family that can be supportive, even if they're not vegan so they they try their best and it's really i really appreciate it what is your what is your advice to people when they're trying really hard to be healthy to incorporate more vegetarianism or veganism and they just you know something goes wrong um and they have eaten something that's not vegetarian or vegan or that's just totally unhealthy um how do you try to get people back on track
1: I, you know, I just tell them to just start again the next day. Pretty simple. Um, Just day to day and not to worry about it. But the other thing too is um, I have a vegan community. I have, you know, where I can come and we can vent and we can, you know, talk about whatever we want in a vegan space where we we talk about veganism, but primarily we don't. You know, we just kind of have this vegan heaven space and that's really really important that you have to be with your tribe because negotiating in an omni world uh, is stressful you know and you have to be able to retreat just like you have to be able to retreat um, from you know from all different types of stresses that you have so that's really important um, Mm -hmm. just for for anybody to be able to have that community so if you're uh, a newbie vegetarian, you need to have that or a newbie vegan, you need to have that newbie vegan community. If mm. you're an old head, you need to have that community for, for your sanity.
0: Thank you very much, Tracy. It's been great talking to you. And um, I'm really grateful that you came on the show and shared a little bit about just your personal journey, but also your approach as you work with people to lead healthier lives.
1: Thank you, Elisa.
0: I really enjoyed it. Take care. Yeah. Now, I'm joined by Jasmine Singer. She's the co-host of the weekly podcast, Our Hen House, and the co-founder of the nonprofit by the same name. She's also a regular public speaker on veganism and the author of the recent book, Always Too Much and Never Enough. Jasmine, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So I guess the only way to really start is tell us your vegan origin story. I have been vegan for 13 years. So I went
2: vegan when I was 24. And I was already a longtime vegetarian by then. I had gone vegetarian at 19, mainly because I thought that meat was icky. And I thought it was a natural extension of, you know, being a theater student, like wearing all black and smoking clove cigarettes (laughs) and calling myself a vegetarian. And When I went vegan, it was really the first time I gave any thought to factory farming or Mm. where food actually came from. The whole time I was vegetarian, I just said, I didn't want to know. And it was more instinctual. So I saw a documentary that really went into what it meant and how animal foods were produced, and in particular, I was really amazed and horrified by the way that dairy cows and egg-laying hens were treated, and that's when I decided to
0: go vegan. In both our cases, media played a role. For you, it was a documentary for me, I went vegetarian based on reading in, in magazines I got. But then I finally made the shift over to veganism because I read a book called Meat Market by Eric Marcus. And it reminded mm-hmm. me, oh, philosophically, this is what I ought to be doing. And so what's interesting to me then is that our hen house was founded as as basically a media company devoted to creating media to support veganism and animal rights causes. If mainstream media was all we had to go by to make these decisions, where do you think we would be? I
2: think that the mainstream media is shifting the Mm. way that it messages veganism and the way it, it reacts to animal rights issues. But as part of that shift, there is initially a backlash. Mm -hmm. So that's why on the Our Hen House podcast, we have a segment called Rising Anxieties, and that's where we react to what the mainstream media and the opposition like animal agriculture is saying about animal rights and veganism. So it's completely hilarious because we'll either get like absolute bogus messaging about how we are just trying to like shift the world into patchouli smelling, <laughs> you know, uh, hemp clothes wearing hippies and how we're just infiltrating these big companies and and just saying the, the most ludicrous the most ludicrous things about veganism and we'll either get that or we'll get people saying that if you go vegan, you're going to die right. <laughs> and, and we'll get, or you know how people who raise their kids vegan are abusive parents and, mm-hmm. or what we're starting to see more and more, which I think is a re- a result of that backlash is, People are starting to get it. They're starting to understand that there is a vegan version of every animal product out there, and that for a lot of people,
0: embracing veganism more is becoming a moral imperative. I used to get a Google alert for the word vegan, and you know I follow a lot of hot topics. I follow issues of race and social justice and patriarchy and misogyny and politics. I mean, these are all the things I'm interested in and follow. And I had to, I had to turn off the vegan Google alert because I got so disheartened because I felt like it was either portraying veganism as crazy, like literally um or mm. angry and um and and ironically violent like they're, they they re- people really like to you know consider vegans to be like terrorists almost and i got super uh, disheartened like ah gosh that is nobody i know <laughs> in the in the vegan world of people i know like nobody's like that but that is th- those are the perpetuated stories and I just, I had to turn off the negativity and that really surprised me give, give, given how much other negative stuff I like can seem to manage no problem.
2: One way that we like to frame that with our hen house is that it's a really positive thing because, you know, I'm going to mess up that quote, but there's a quote that's something like, you know, first they laugh at you, then they reprimand you uh-huh. and then they do all these other things to you and then they go vegan. You know. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So it to me, the way I've I've had uh, Marianne Sullivan and I co-founded our henhouse in 2010. And before that, I worked for Farm Sanctuary as the campaigns manager. And and I have seen a lot of shifts. And what I have seen consistently is that those things that you're talking about, that that backlash is the final step mm. before people jump on board. Because we have no other choice. We won't have a planet unless we unless we start to embrace veganism and for a lot of people once they learn the way that animals are treated even in the most seemingly benign circumstances they realize that there
0: is really no other way to go but toward the plants um, so people often ask me about backyard chickens, and I'll never forget, there's a blogger named Katie Allison, um, and she raises chickens. And she wrote this whole long post once about, I'm tired of uh, basically hobbyist backyard chicken raisers writing to me privately and asking me if I'll take their old chickens, because apparently chickens stop laying after four or five years, but they'd live if you, if they're not living in a factory farm, if they are living in your backyard, they live for years longer. And so now you're just feeding them as, as pets basically. And she's like, look, you're either going to keep them as pets or you're going to kill them. Don't, don't ask me to take your chicken. So, because I'll do the killing, you know, so fine, have them as pets. Um, But, but a lot of people get into that and don't realize that there's this aspect of it that, that you have a non laying chicken. And so, You know, people often ask me, um, you know, would you eat an egg from a backyard chicken? And I was like, well, look, if it was my chicken that I raised from a chick and I was going to keep as a pet forever and she just happened to leave these eggs for me. I mean, I guess I would, although that would be weird to eat an egg after all this time. But but that's not how it is. I mean, that's the kind of idyllic. Uh, illusion that we want to live with. I always say to people, you know, trying to figure out given the things like cage free and organic or free range don't have legal meanings. It's much easier for me to just draw a hard line and say, I don't want to try and figure out who's really ethical and who's not, when 90% of what's available is, is not. So it's just easier to say, boom, I'm done. Like that's, for me, cold turkey has always been the easiest way. I know that's not the right approach for everybody, but it it has been for me. Both when I went vegetarian, it was like boom in an instant. And then when I went vegan, you know, 17 years later, it was boom in an instant. I was like, okay, I'm doing this. Same with me. Yeah. It's interesting because I have also noticed the trend
2: of how veganism is on the rise. A perfect example is the only person in my family, really, who consumes animal products is my brother. He lives in Kansas. And he's pretty combative. When we talk about veganism, he's your stereotypical, like loud, opinionated, instigating older brother type, you know, <laughs> like just trying to pick at me. But when I look in his fridge, he has the vegan meats and he mm-hmm. has the tempeh and he has the tofu and he has the coconut based ice cream. And, and but is I'm that for seeing... him or
0: for you when you visit? Or when your family members visit?
2: Not just for me. So people are shifting. And there's a store in my my neighborhood in New York City that is a cheese shop. And I stopped there once because they had Greek coffee. And I asked if they had soy milk. And it was like she had never thought of it before. And I... She started carrying soy milk after I asked for it. Now, a year later, they carry vegan cheese. They carry vegan wow. ice cream. They hosted a vegan pop-up market. They carry my book, cool. which you know has, which is all about veganism in a lot of ways. And this is a cheese shop. It's probably fifty percent vegan now, and that to me wow. is
0: hopeful. That's amazing. Yeah, this is okay, so this is another issue. I'm all about prove there's a market. As if there's a market, more companies will make more stuff for me. So I know it's a an, a topic of discussion in vegan communities like when Kraft buys Morningstar Farms or if I'm not sure I got that right. But you know, when mm-hmm. when smaller companies Adwala up, by Coca-Cola. I do know that's right. Um, So smaller smaller companies get bought by bigger companies who maintain them being vegetarian or vegan companies. And I know a lot of vegan people think, I want to support the little guy. Why am I going to support this multinational company that does other things I totally disagree with? And I'm like, I hear you, but I want there to be a market for vegan products. I want there to be money to be made on vegan products because that means people will make more stuff for me. That means it will be a, a snowball effect of more... More and more and more, and that will help change more people. So where do you fall on that spectrum? Oh, the supply is driven
2: by demand, and that's why I think it's just great to demand these products whenever we can. And by demand, I mean, you know, ask ask, and prove that there is yeah. a market. And just like this store in my neighborhood, more and more companies are indeed seeing that there's a strong market. You know Ben & Jerry's now carries a vegan ice yes. cream, and it's very popular. I'm seeing billboards for the vegan ice cream that Ben & Jerry's carries all over the place. And to me, for the consumer, it's not only useful to show that there is a a way of having veganism be super easy in your life, but it's also at the same time making the connection between the ethical reasons why people are going vegan and why people like my brother are going more vegan. Because... Mm-hmm. for many people are kind hearted and just don't know what's going on and once they learn what's going on nobody would want to support animal agriculture
0: I am totally a believer though that that any step people can take and there's always more steps you could take to be ever more humane ever more kind totally. uh, you know. so I you know I used to live in New York and I people there were people there who were anti-fur but not much else and a lot of people would get down on them and I'm like well at least they're there and something triggered them to be that like if they can if they can become anti fur they can become anti something else and if they can become anti veal calf ultimately do, do we not Think that they're taking some steps. I mean, I'd rather them be anti veal calf than pro veal calf, and so, like, I I'm I'm a big believer in that, and just trying to kind of nudge along. I totally and make agree. Make people more conscious. That's, yeah,
2: I totally agree. I always try and meet people with where they're at and what is attainable and realistic for them. So right. my messaging. Right. So it, it's, it's people have asked me, "What's your messaging?" And I'm 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 asking, "Who who am I talking to? What is their belief mm. system right now? What is their life like? What is their behavior?" So for a lot of people, I say, well, can you go vegan three days a week to start? Can you go vegan five days a week to start? What about vegan until six to start? And you just brought up something interesting because you were talking about if they're anti this, they could be anti that. If they're anti this, maybe they'll be anti that. Well, another way of looking at it is realizing that veganism is about abundance and not deprivation. Mm -hmm, So focusing mm -hmm. on being pro compassion and pro living in an ethical continuum with your belief system would be a way of actually approaching veganism from a glass half full perspective, not thinking about taking off of the plate, but thinking about what we're putting on the plate.
0: Yeah. As I was saying all those antis, I was like, I am saying anti a lot and I feel very pro. Like I I knew it as I was saying it, but you're so right. um, That that's, that is another way to look at it about how much you, you add to what, um, because I I eat things now I never ate before because I'm constantly trying new things. um, And uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of pro to it. I wanted to ask you, um, you mentioned that your brother's your only family member who still eats non-vegan, but was that how it started or did your family sort of evolve as you as you kind of went along in your journey?
2: Yeah, I, I the latter. I'm lucky. I'm very, very lucky. Yeah. I went, so I went vegetarian, as I mentioned, when I was 19. I went vegan at 24. And at that time, my mother, about a month later, said that she would go on a vegan diet for a month. And she she kept saying, I'm not going to stop eating meat. And it was because she was really in this cycle of dieting, which you could read more about Mm -hmm. in my book. But she was in this vicious cycle of dieting and the quintessential diet food is, this is so gross, but it's like skinless white chicken breast. And so she (laughs) didn't think she could live without
0: skinless white chicken breast. Well, no, I mean, that's very common. Um, But I I can see how on the one hand, people say go vegan for weight loss and health. And on the other hand... You know, there's already um, a lot. Of, if you're trying to eat for weight loss, you already probably feel this sense of deprivation that that um, is. There's like this counter things going against one another right. there. That absolutely I think are
2: tough. I had it too, and I was afraid of the permanence of the word vegan for sure. And in fact, mm. someone mm-hmm. in my life introduced me as a vegan before I had decided I was a vegan, and I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, what does this mean yeah. about my life? Yeah. Like, now do I have to just start? throwing red paint at people wearing fur. I had all these misperceptions (laughs) of what it meant to be. vegan, And I was afraid that the permanence of the word would cause me to fail. And, you know, obviously the bottom line is to not let the perfect be the enemy of the good and to just start to do it in a way that works for you. A lot of people these days are doing the 21 day vegan challenge kind of thing, or they're starting Mm -hmm. with six weeks or they're starting with Mm -hmm. what seems like a little less, Big. And what I found, and my mother eventually found also because she's now been vegan for, you know, almost the same amount of time as me, is that it is a lot easier than people think. And it's because any shift has a strong emotional, mental, psychological component. And it's scary. We don't want to live outside of our comfort zones, but we find that we start to look at menus differently. We go right to the vegan section. We know what to look for. And oftentimes we find other vegans in our community and it, it becomes a really exciting thing. It was the very
0: best decision I've ever made. Well, something I realized is, because I had tried and failed earlier, like in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. And it was harder then, no doubt. There was no Whole Foods. There was no Trader Joe's. There was no, like, um, people didn't know what you were talking about in restaurants or when you traveled. It was harder back then. It's really easy right now um, to be vegan. I am trying to live the best vegan life I can um, for myself and for my beliefs and my my ethics, right? So, So, you know, it's interesting because our previous episode of this podcast was all about body image and having positive body image. Your story about veganism is very intertwined with your story about your own health and body image. That's the major theme of your memoir. Can you just tell us a little bit about how those two topics work together because I do think people think vegan equals skinny or vegan equals healthy. And I think I know I'm living proof. And and in your past, you may have been as well that that we can manage to screw that up. (laughs)
2: I think in many ways, what you're talking about is a universal story. When I was growing up in the electric uh, fluorescent 1980s, and my mother, who was always trying to go from 122 pounds to 120, was constantly in a vicious cycle of Weight Watchers and Jenny Craig and Nutrisystem. And I was the fat kid trailing behind her, trying to stuff myself into her skinny shadow, playing Tetris and eating Cheez-Its on her way. Way to these weight loss programs. And at school, I was very, very bullied. So the consistent factor for me in, in my own cycle became the solace provided by Oreos and Cheez-Its and all of those other amazing <laughs> and amazingly addictive processed junk foods. It was remarkable to me how these foods were produced in such a way that I could never actually be satisfied. That is the nature of how they're produced with the right amount of sweet to salty to fatty with the perfect consistency of smushy to go down (laughs) my gullet at exactly the right speed and hit that part of my brain that would never actually get full and be satisfied. I replaced a lifelong history of food addiction with the vegan version of it. And as I mentioned before, there is a vegan version of every animal product out there. New York City, where I've lived for the last 17 years, is an elaborate web connecting the vegan panini in Soho to the Butterfinger Shake (laughs) in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, to the vegan (laughs) pizza on the Upper West Side. And I felt it was my moral imperative to try all of them because it was (laughs) for the animals. And oh, my God. Yeah. So my food addiction, it, 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 it continued until I was 30 and on my way to heart disease. And that's when I finally started to change things.
0: Oh, yeah. I I relate to that. You know, every time when I'm eating at home, it's pretty easy. But when I go to New York, especially like there's so many great choices. And of course, all my friends and colleagues are super supportive and like, like, let's go to a vegan place. And I'm like, you don't understand. Those are like a trap for me to eat in ways that I normally do not. Like I got to go have the Satan scallopini every single time with the mashed potatoes and the sauce and the gravy. Mm-hmm. And like that there's just as much fat in that version as there is in any other version. And, and part of me exactly has that mind frame of like well you know it's i'm I'm, it's for the animals (laughs) i i just want to in closing i just want to bring up you are off on a new adventure now you just announced you're going to work for veg news magazine i'll be the senior editor over at veg news and
2: i'm working with a truly remarkable team in what is my very favorite magazine in the entire universe so i'm very lucky
0: Oh, well, congratulations. And I was super thrilled to hear it. And Jasmine, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thanks for all you do. That's it for this episode of Who She Knows, a She Knows Media podcast. For next week's episode, I'm excited that we'll get to interview Zerlina Maxwell. Zerlina is a former commentator on all the 24-7 news channels, but now she is one of the directors of communications for the Hillary Clinton campaign, and she's particularly focused on digital outreach to women and communities of color. So we're excited to have her and talk about the 2016 presidential election. I'm your host, Elisa Camahort page Chief Community Officer of Shino's Media. Please tweet me, at Elisa C., or leave a message for us on either the blog, her or Shino's Media Facebook page. Or now you can email us at podcast at shenows.com. We would love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening.